What if I told you that being in the right place at the right time was not a circumstance of luck? What if I told you it's a skill that you can learn and leverage to achieve your goals and dreams? This is the Right Place Right Now podcast with Travis Fields and Brandon Johnson. Welcome back to Right Place Right Now. Today's episode is inspiring, motivating, heart-wrenching, and is sure to make you think about how you're living your life. Ethan Fisher is a mental health and substance abuse prevention advocate. Touring the country as a keynote speaker, Ethan shares his struggle so that others can learn from his mistakes. After an incident where Ethan found himself in prison, his life took a turn to purpose. Ethan uses his life story to illustrate the devastating consequences of sweeping mental health issues under the rug and avoiding discussions of substance abuse. His message is one of accountability and self-care, and it's something that I think we can all learn from. I hope you enjoy this episode as much as I did. Ladies and gentlemen, Ethan Fisher. Well, before we get into our conversation today, if you like what you're hearing and you haven't done so yet, please take a minute to leave us a review and a positive rating. It's the most effective way that you can help us get our message out there and reach more awesome people like you. Ethan, welcome to the Right Place Right Now podcast, sir. It's great to have you. How are you? I'm good, Brandon. How are you? Travis, it's a pleasure. Yeah, yeah, good to meet you. Thanks for being with us, man. First off, I want to say, where are you? What is, what's behind you here? Just a random picture of an auditorium. I, I wish I was actually in an auditorium. So, um, <laughs> okay. You know, my whole speaking career of being in front of college students and high school students, I, I had to make a backdrop that made me feel comfortable during this COVID stuff. Nice. I like it. I like it. Get you back in your element, right? So let's talk a little bit about that. You're on the speaking circuit, talking to university age um, individuals, high school age individuals. What is it that you're speaking on? What is it that you're offering to these these kids in these schools? Yeah, so it's a variety of stuff through my life story of drugs, alcohol abuse. A big piece of it is mental health, uh, suicide prevention. And I really just cover my story of all the choices and decisions I made as a student and student athlete. But I try to make it aware for these students, whether they're in middle school or college or even parent sessions, that it's okay to struggle. You know, we're dealing in a time right now with COVID and people are struggling. Depression is a serious issue, but it's always been taboo. So, you know, when you're in middle school and high school, you don't like to talk about your feelings. You don't know how to approach those things. So I kind of come in and and I, I like to say I kick down the door of these conversations and basically tell my story and say, hey, this is what I went through. It's okay if you're struggling. Go get help if you need it. It's opening the conversation about these hard topics. So you're finding these these university age and high school kids are, are struggling with these topics, mental health, drug abuse, possibly um, depression, things like that, but they don't have outlets. So you're really just trying to come in and let them know, like, you're not alone in this. I've got a story to tell to let you know that this is okay. Exactly. And because I'm so vulnerable and open about all the bad things that happened to me from suicide attempts to alcohol, you know, addiction and trying to take my life with overdosing, it allows students to feel like they can come and talk to me. And with COVID, this is the worst part of what's happened for me on the speaking end is I don't get to sit there and be in front of students where 
they feel safe and comfortable after I speak where they come up and they tell me the deepest, darkest secrets that they're going through. And you can tell that they've never told anybody before. For me, that is the, the, the quintessential part of why I do my job is to have one of those kids that, you know, normally sits in the back of the classroom is scared to talk. And then they come up and say, Hey, I'm Mr. Fisher, I'm, I've been thinking about suicide all the time. What do I do? Is it okay? How, how do I approach this? And you can just see this sense of ease on these kids when they open up about it. And that's, that's, that's why I do this job. And I honestly, I miss it so much. The online stuff is cool, but I miss being with the students and, and kind of being that safety net for them. We all were, we were all middle school, high school kids at one point, And we know that's a tough time. One thing I, I do try to talk about a lot now is with social media. Like my generation, I didn't have social media, so I, I didn't give in to those types of peer pressures. And these kids have it way worse than, you know, we had it as, you know, growing up. What do you think it is, Ethan, that puts that stigma on this stuff as a culture that we're so afraid to talk about it? So I, I think it's a, a part of, especially in the, the male-dominated culture of athletics and sports and then corporate, males have over generations, and this has been going on for years, we don't talk about those inner feelings. We're always supposed to be like, I, I can get through this. You know, if you have a, a broken bone, you you shake it off and, you know, rub some dirt on it. Rub and, dirt on it. Yeah. <laughs> and, and so I think, I think we've been so molded, you know, and it's my dad's generation, my grandpa's generation. Like it's been going on for so long that as a male, we're, we're supposed to feel this you know, we're tough and, and we have this exterior where nothing's going to stop us. But the reality is we're struggling just like everybody else. We just don't have, we're not built to talk about it. It's been that same way. I was just reading an article today about, about mental health and where it was coming from. And, and it's not just men, it's women as well. It's been stigmatized for so long where even if women were talking about depression or suicide, you know, 15, 20 years ago, people would look at them like they're crazy. Like there's something wrong with your brain you know, you had the psych wards and, and all that type of stuff. And, and that whole stigma of depression and being suicidal, like people would see it as there's something wrong with you versus everybody's had, not everybody, but a high percentage of population has had these thoughts. Let's put it out in the open and say, hey, we're all dealing with this type of stuff. Let's address it and see what we can do to make it better. But everybody was scared of it. Uh, I, I mean, I didn't talk about my first suicide attempt um, until like two or three years ago. And my first one was in eighth grade. And I never told anybody I grew up with because it was, hey, I don't want to be the crazy kid walking through middle school and my friends making fun of me. And so it was always keep it inside. I'm an athlete. I'm, I'm, I'm popular with people, but don't don't talk about your weakness. It's it's frowned upon. So it I, I think it's just it's been so programmed in us for so long. And I think this is really the first time as a cohesive population and unit, we've been able to talk about this stuff openly. Yeah. We've, uh, we've talked before on this podcast with some other guests about how this is so normal, but it's not normalized, you know, stories like yours are, are starting to bring this stuff to the surface and make it okay to talk about it. How can we, as just a culture, like what do we need to do to start tackling this as a whole? I actually think this pandemic 
it's destroyed a lot of people's lives, millions of lives, right? It's been horrible on the majority of the people in this population. But the one benefit that I've seen is it's it's kind of made everybody feel this, this life of isolation and what depression is. Because you're told you can't leave your house, you, you got to wear a mask, you're losing individualization. And so more and more people are dealing with this COVID depression or COVID fatigue, whatever you want to call it. So we now have a central moment in, in human history where we can all say, man, COVID, like 2020 was tough. Were you struggling with depression? Yeah, I was, I was in my house with my family and we didn't leave the house for two months. And, and so I think it's normalized that conversation. Like everybody's struggling right now with, with just COVID in general, but it's, it's mental health as a, as a whole, what everybody's going through. COVID is just bringing it to the surface. (laughs) Yes, sir. It's that's great insight. So what you said, you weren't able to talk about your first story of suicide until recently. What in you had you seen change to where you're feeling comfortable enough to start to share that, to normalize it and inspire others to be open about their feelings and what's going on with them. I was always embarrassed of it. The first time I ever saw a psychiatrist was when I was 23 years old playing college basketball. And one of my stories where I talk about it is feeling so embarrassed and ashamed, like walking through the hallway, not letting anybody see me. And so all the way up until I was 23, I didn't tell anybody. I think there's one friend that knew I saw a counselor. The rest I wouldn't tell. None of my teammates knew. My coaches didn't know. The athletic director, nobody knew. It wasn't until I actually spoke at that same school in 2016 or 17, where, where it was the first time I openly talked about one of my first suicide attempts in eighth grade. And here I have all these division one athletes finally coming up to me and saying, man, we've been thinking the same thing. We've been struggling. Nobody talks about this. And from that moment, something clicked. And ever since then, I've been openly discussing this mental health thing because it's, you know, at first it started with just athletics. Here you are, you're supposed to be an athlete. You're not going to talk about your issues or problems. But when I found out that other athletes were struggling, it it kind of clicked and said, okay, now there's athletes struggling. But once I started opening up to the entire student body and I had kids who had, you know, green hair from theater and I had kids from rodeo, I had kids from band and they're coming up telling me the same thing. It just, it just made me realize how many kids are struggling. And ever since then, that's, it's been a huge part of what I do. What do you think at that level, and by that level, I mean like at that age group, what do you think is is the cause of this? Is it the environment that they're growing up in? Is it the, is it the social media? What's leading to so many young people suffering from mental illness, depression? Is it influences? Where is this stemming from? Do you know yet, or have you put a finger on any of it? Yeah, well, there are articles and research that show Suicide has increased dramatically since 2007-2008, and what they actually tie that to is when did Facebook and Twitter and social media start to become popular, 2007-2008. Now, I'm not blaming it all on social media, but I also think it's, it's we live in this technology area or you know life now where everybody has access to media, so I think 20 years ago, kids were struggling, but it wasn't talked about in the media. It wasn't shown on a social media feed. I mean, you think about all the school shootings that have happened. The reason people know about them is because we have all these media sources now. 
So if a kid is dealing with depression, they see somebody else struggling with it, they post it on social media. So now everybody's seeing it and it's floating around out there and it's, it's almost made it more popular to, to have those issues. And there's actually articles and it's in uh, Malcolm Gladwell's book where they talk about, he found an article on, um, uh, he was a prince of an island or something like that. And there were like very few suicides on this island. And then when the prince did something wrong, he ended up taking his own life and they saw the suicides on that island skyrocket because of somebody in an influential position took themselves out and, and committed suicide or completed suicide. So it made it almost popular on that island. Like our prince can do it. So can we. So it's almost like normalizing it, but in, in a negative way. Yeah, exactly. Like if you look at, um, you know, Robin Williams suicide and you look at some of these celebrities, the, the suicide rates actually increase during those times because they think it's people who are struggling. think it's okay. If somebody that's rich and famous can do it, why can't I? It's scary. The more that I've been doing research and, and going through all these numbers and, and it's not just kids, you know, teens, it, the second most cause of death is suicide for, for teenage group. And I've been, I've been trying to help all these kids realize like, Hey, once you get older, you get tools and you have methods to where you can prevent some of these depressive episodes where you can feel safe and, and manage it. But if you don't address it when you're in middle school, high school and college, it starts impacting the rest of your life. And that's why I'm glad we're talking about this today, because I've really tried to make a point of it this last like year. I found out anywhere between 70 and 80% of the suicides in this country aren't by the youth. It's middle-aged Americans. You go and look on CDC, you go and look on all that. The majority of suicides, the mass majority of suicides are people between the ages of 25 and 55. It's not the kids. It's the people who've lost their job to COVID, who have kids and they can't take care of it. These men who are unequipped to talk about emotional things, they feel that it's e the easiest way out is to take their life. And when you look at the alcohol and drugs to be associated with it, the reason why men do it is because they're drunk or high and then they have access to hand weapons. That's why the suicide rates are so much higher in men than it is in, in women. But it's because we don't know how to talk about it. We're afraid to talk about it. You know, just having these types of conversations and letting other people know, like, this is something that's impacting millions of lives. So we need to talk about it. Yeah, I think there's a there's a really powerful message in there. You're talking about when a celebrity commits suicide and then suicide rates go up. That is a textbook example of the power of influence. So that can work the other way too. If more people come forward with this stuff and talk about it and we hear more stories of people overcoming and not succumbing to it, there's power in that influence also. Yeah. So I think one of the best things that's happened from a mental health standpoint in his last like two years has been celebrities talking about it. Kevin Love comes out after, you know, the 2017 finals or whatever it was, talking about his panic attacks and anxiety. So here you have this NBA all-star that's talking about it. And now you have Lady Gaga, who is doing unbelievable things for youth mental health. And she works with the, the uh, mental health first aid and providing programs for students to talk about this. And, and DeMar DeRozan. And I mean, there's a, a list of people who are talking about it, but now we have celebrities 
who like Travis, you just said, now they have the ability to say, Hey, I've gone through this. It's a part of my life. I have to deal with it. I get counseling or I get medication. I do what I need to, but it's okay. I'm still here. I'm still breathing. We can, we can fight this together. Yeah. The message becomes let's deal with this before it's too late. Like I, I got it before it was too late. So that message becomes important too, then as people are promoting this. Yep. So one of the, I guess one of the, the focuses I've had this last year with all this is, you know, I love working with the youth. That's, that brings me joy. Like I love it, but I also think it's so important that I'm opening this dialogue now, because if you can get a middle school or a high school kid to say, Hey, I should see a counselor, or I need to talk to somebody about this. We're giving them the tools at that time when they're 17, 18 years old to deal with depression when they're 30, 32, 33, you know, when they get older, they can say, Oh, I, I had an issue back in middle school, but I've talked to a counselor before. So I can go see, see one again. Whereas up until this last couple of years, you're 33 years old and you've never even addressed this issue before. So you don't, you're not properly trained. You don't have the, the right awareness of what's going on. So you don't know how to address it. And then you also feel like I know as a, as a motivational speaker, people look up to me and like, Oh, you do these amazing things. But like, I still struggle. Like life is hard. Like you're always going to have things that come up, whether it's a a breakup or you're fighting with your family or, or you lost your job. Life is never going to be perfect, but if you have tools in your toolbox, then you can, you know, kind of fight those issues off and, and, and have a bigger, brighter day the next day, but we're not built for that. We haven't been educated. Yeah. I think that's another piece of social media too, is it, it makes it look like everybody else's life is perfect and mine's the only one that has problems, but really, uh, you know, I, I struggle with that in my own business too, of like, we just had some things go wrong in the last few years that were out of my control. And I was kind of found myself sitting around waiting for life to get easier. <laughs> and, you know, I realized like, it's not going to get easier. Life is just hard. It's up to me on how I deal with that and what I do with it. So it's, it's just, again, that stigma of everybody else's life is perfect on my phone screen and mine isn't. And that's just not true. No, you're exactly right. It's, no matter how many motivational people you listen to or stories you listen to, it's up to the person. Like you have to realize you have to make a change. Otherwise life isn't going to get easier, but you know, touching on what you're talking about with the comparison, you know, a lot of people don't realize like you're, you're watching these people on Instagram. They took a hundred pictures to get that one perfect picture and you're comparing your life to them and, and they're stressing out because they have to make a perfect picture they have to get every blemish out. They have to get every light fixture out. So they're struggling with it by posting this perfect picture. And then the kids or whoever's watching are like, oh man, they have this perfect life and they don't. Yeah. Or even to go to the next level, these people have professional teams that make their lives look perfect. Right. Yeah, exactly. I, we, we don't have professional teams. I, uh, I had a buddy that said he did some like um, work with a company that took pictures of models and he said they spent like 80 hours on each picture photoshopping everything, you know, wow. and some of the most beautiful people in the world. And they're still going through and filtering and take like, you know, we're all human. We all have like, you know, I got gray haired in my beard. I'm losing my hair. Like 
I, I am who I am. Let's not, you know, put a fake picture out there and all these filters on Snapchat and Instagram. And it, I don't know. I, it's just, we're living in a weird world right now. Yeah, that's very true. And this has impacted you, right? Cause you're on the speaker circuit. You've said now you're not being able to touch people face to face. If we're looking at your story from a third party, just, just coming across you, it seems like you're one of the things we like to say in here is like, Oh, you got lucky. You're able to travel and teach your, tell your story, teach this inspiring message to kids. But, but there's been a lot to that for you to get to this point, right? Especially in a time of COVID, but pre all that, can you take us down that journey a little bit? Like what were some of those defining moments that led you to this moment now to where this is your passion project and the thing that you're inspired to put into the world and give back? I actually joke about it during my speech. You know, I took interpersonal communications online. I intentionally failed college courses so I wouldn't have to present. And here I am, this motivational speaker in front of hundreds of, you know, students and thousands of students all the time. I didn't want to be a speaker. I still struggle with social anxiety. So this whole COVID thing has actually kind of been a breath of fresh air for me because I don't, I can go two or three weeks without talking to people and it's not that big of a deal to me. Like I don't even go out in public to grocery shop. My wife does that now. So I don't have to even go out in public. But with that being said, I didn't want to be a speaker. I, I was coaching college basketball. Like I think you knew Brandon and I had always been involved with basketball. So when I graduated college, I thought I was just going to be a college basketball coach and, and work up that ladder to, you know, be a coach. And I started getting asked to tell my story to like these eighth grade basketball teams and then the criminal justice class on my campus. And it was more of a like, here, tell your story because we think it's, we can get something out of it, but I didn't realize what it was. And so I'm just like, Hey, this happened to me. I went through this criminal justice piece. You know, I was eighth grade basketball player and I had to work X, Y, Z to, you know, play in college. And so it wasn't anything. It was just voluntary, you know, coming to help somebody. And then I saw a speaker on my campus and I'll never forget this. I don't want to say his name, but he's, he changed my life and I've, I've talked to him. He ended up drunk driving and killing three of his best friends in college on spring break and paralyzing the other one. And when he came and spoke at my university, after all that I've been through, he made such a huge impact on me that I decided at that moment, sitting in the auditorium, that I was going to be a speaker. You know, I, I joke about it and say, you know, motivational speakers, when before I had this job were snake oil salesmen. They get up on stage and they hoorah and inspire you, but you know, you leave out the door and they don't make an impact. And so I never thought any, you know, positive things about motivational speakers until that day he came to my campus and I realized like, man, this guy has just changed my life. How many millions of people has he changed? And so that was my starting point of I've got to do everything I can to try to be like him. And so I just started volunteering and, and trying and practicing. And it has been a process as a motivational speaker. If you're not a celebrity or a, an athlete or a New York times bestseller being seen and getting companies and organizations and high schools to book you is one of the hardest things I've ever done with my life. Like it is, it is so hard because they don't know who you are, especially when you're starting. 
why would we pay you to come in and talk to our students when we can go get XYZ that played for the Broncos? Those are things you don't think about when you start out in this career. And, you know, obviously now COVID is, is um, completely changed how speakers speak. And so this has been an adjustment for me as well. You know, I was heading into my best speaking year ever and then COVID hit. And now it's been, it's been rough because high schools aren't booking events and colleges have some online stuff. It's been, it's been rough, but like you said, this is my purpose and my passion and, uh, and I'm going to work each and every single day to better myself as a speaker, but also work on trying to get those opportunities. Can we go back and tell a little bit of your story? Because there are some really cool parallels. Like I met you at Johnson and Wales. I think I was like on my last year, whenever you were coming in through basketball, uh, we knew some, some, some friends, but you, you have a really unique situation because you weren't the typical 18 year old coming into a college basketball team. That was a stud out of high school, right? You had, from what I understand, you were a stud, you were highly recruited out of high school, but then your life kind of shifted on you and then you had to reevaluate. So can you take us back to after you're leaving high school or even in high school, like what was your path? What did you think you were going? And then how did it actually flush out? Honestly, I wasn't um, highly recruited out of high school. Okay. I was one of the top, like, if you go and look at the stats, I was top three or top five in assists and steals and free throw percentage in the state of Colorado, but I was always overlooked because I was from Fort Collins. I was five, I think I was five, eight, five, nine, my senior year, like 135 pounds. So I was a scrawny, you know, tiny point guard. And so out of college, I got one scholarship offer to Lamar junior college. And so I went because that was the only place that would give me a chance to play and pay for my school. So I jumped on, on it right away. What ended up happening is basically I turned into a full-fledged alcoholic and drug addict because I looked at basketball as I always thought I was going to play professional overseas. And so I never, I didn't want to play college. I only did college because I thought it was mandatory for me to get seen. And so during my college time, I just kept getting better and better and better. I ended up failing out of five college basketball programs to sum it all up. And my last school was at UNC the year they were going to division one. And that's when I got in my drunk driving accident and, um, you know, ended up killing an innocent person. Um, so I had all these opportunities of college basketball program, college basketball program, and my skill level just kept, kept getting better and better. Cause I started getting confident. I started getting stronger. Um, I was playing against people from all over the country. So, you know, like anything in this world, when you have confidence, you can go to different levels, whether it's in your, your workforce or in school or, you know, whether you're a, a theater major or whatever it may be, when you have confidence, you just get better and better. And so my confidence, I was, at times, I will say I was overconfident for who I was and where I was actually playing because I had gone to all these small schools, but I had this ego as if I was a, you know, a big time, you know, D1 recruit that was getting recruited by these big schools when the reality wasn't. But I knew I could compete against any of those guys anytime that I stepped on that floor. But, you know, the alcohol ruined my life. I'll flat out say that that is the worst thing that I ever got involved in. I turned into an alcoholic and threw away all my academics and basketball. And, you know, obviously, I killed an innocent person from it. And that's, 
you know, I can't think of anything worse than that as a rock bottom, um, you know, waking up in the hospital and finding out that I drunk drove and killed somebody. So obviously that's, that's actually the biggest piece of why I'm a speaker is to prevent as many people from drunk driving as possible because we've all seen it on campuses. We've all seen it at workplaces, you know, a New Year's Eve party or, a, uh, you know, a Super Bowl party. You see people who are business owners or parents and they're driving home after they drink. And so my mission has always been to prevent drunk driving. And then the middle, the mental health stuff kind of just started to grow on top of it because that's what I was doing. I was using drugs and alcohol as a coping mechanism. So what is that? Cause you said that that's the rock bottom is after your accident, you wake up in the hospital, you realize you you've killed somebody, you've been in somebody's innocent life. What does that start to look like? I mean, you're not just rebuilding after that, that there comes a time of darkness with that, where there's some self-discovery. Can you walk us through some of that? If you don't mind. Um, I don't actually talk about it a whole lot during my speeches, but after the accident, I was on bond for eight months before I was going to prison. And that eight months was the darkest, scariest time in my life. I was on so much medication. They had me on so many meds that my mom said I'd used, like I'd walk around the house almost drooling. I didn't know anything about the prison system at the time. And so my attorney kept coming back during that eight months. And he's like, they're talking about 48 years in prison. And then like two months would go by and he's like, no, we got it down to 36 years in prison. And so here I am, this 23 year old ex-college student, I'm sitting at my parents' house on bond thinking I'm going to prison for the next 40 years of my life. And I couldn't, I couldn't go into public because everybody back home that knew me from basketball like if I went to King Supers, people would hug and cry on me and they are, and it just made me feel so bad. And I was completely suicidal almost every day of that eight months. Like, I don't want to, I don't want to go to prison. I would rather die. Like, I don't want to do this. But um, I, I, I talk about it in my speeches and I, I truly believe God is the only reason why I'm here today. And so like, I, I don't know how I managed those, those eight months on bond. Like it was, it was scary. It was scary for my family and people don't talk about that. Like my dad had to hide a knife from me one time. Cause he thought I was going to cut my wrists. You know, he, people were worried about me. It was, it was, a, it was a, it was horrible. Hmm. So you're in this place at that point where it's, just hopeless. Like, it seems like there is no way it's ever going to get better from here. No, it was, um, I, I don't even know how to describe how dark it was. And, you know, you're just hopeless. Like here you are waking up every day and then the guilt is hitting. Like, why didn't I die that night? Why did he die? You know, every day I, I woke up wishing that it was me that took his place. And I, I literally had my parents drive me up and down the, the road where the accident took place because I don't remember any of it. And it was like two days after the accident, three days after the accident, after I checked out of the hospital and I actually was in a, a voluntarily checked myself into a mental health psych ward um, after the accident for like three days. So when my parents picked me up after three days, I asked them to drive me down the road because I wanted to try to remember what happened and I couldn't, I couldn't remember anything. Um, 
and just that whole, and I still deal with it today, getting up every day and knowing that I have this job where I get to speak and inspire and travel. And like, that has been one of the most difficult things for me uh, on that end is dealing with guilt. And um, I'm not playing poor me for me at all. I, like, I'm probably one of the realest people I know when it comes to this, like, I, I shouldn't have this job in this career. I shouldn't have been able to change my life and do all these amazing things after what happened. But kind of what, what your podcast is summing up, you either give up and you stop and you don't do anything or you, you force yourself to be better. And I took it upon myself after that eight months and going through prison and boot camp and all that type of stuff that I was going to change my life and change who I was because I, I, I wanted a second do-over. Um, so it's been a constant grind since 2014 and, and just trying to be a better person and try to make up for what I did, which I can never make up for no matter how many people I speak to. But all I can do is try. Because I've, I've actually seen a lot of people who were drunk driving and, and killed somebody and they were back drinking and partying months later. And I, I, I couldn't do that. That's, that's not fair to Bill's family. That's not fair to his, his wife or his, his brothers or, you know, so it's, um, yeah, it's, it's been, um, it's been a, a rough challenging couple of years, but it's, you know, there, there's light at the end of the tunnel because I get to help people. And that's, that's the best part of my job. And who's Bill? So Bill's the, the man that died in the accident. Okay. I didn't know him personally. Um, I do use his first name. I don't use his last name uh, in my speeches because I want to be able to pay a tribute to him and his family. Mm -hmm. I think it's the least I can do from amount of respect. Um, yeah. I actually, a lot of people don't know, but um, I, I have a half sleeve dedicated to Bill and his family and the night of the accident with his gravestone and the day of the accident. So that every day, like I brush my teeth, I'm reminded of the pain and tragedy of what I caused because I don't want to ever forget. I won't ever be able to forget, but it's, it's one of those, you know, I just, I don't know. I don't know what else to do. Your, your message is so important because there wasn't just like an aha moment because whenever you were talking about this, just a second ago, you're like, I decided through the process of being on bond and then going to prison that I, I needed to make something positive out of this, but you're still struggling with it every day. It's not just like something, this light goes off one day whenever you're in the yard or, you know, doing your prison time that you're like, okay, I'm going to just be better. It's a daily struggle. So how do you approach that? Because there's got to be times when you just don't feel like showing up in the day. So I, I will say this. I think prison was the best thing that ever happened to me, which sounds kind of bizarre. And how, how long did you do in prison? Uh, three years. Okay. And then I did a total of just over 10 years with the whole system. And, you know, we can talk about that too, but, but what I mean was when I went to prison, I was so out of it. I didn't know what to do that going to prison, like you instantly, once you go through those, those barbed wire fences and you're surrounded by killers and drug dealers, you don't have time to sulk. You don't have time to sit there and feel sorry for yourself because you're worried about the next man who 
killed his own family members. So you don't have time to sit there and, and pity yourself. And so during my first six weeks, seven weeks, I had 24 hour, you know, isolation in a maximum facility and no TV, no nothing. I just started reading books and writing and, you know, basically 24 hours a day of this self-reflection while I'm sitting in a white brick wall cell with nothing and nobody to talk to basically without knowing what meditation was meditating and planning like, man, I'm 24 years old. What am I going to do when I get out when I'm 34 years old? Cause I didn't think I was going to get out until I was 34. And so I started just volunteering for every prison program that I could. And what I ended up getting to do was go to the military DOC prison boot camp, which flat out changed my life. Like the military getting up at 5 a.m. for taps and, and having real green beret and desert storm like just destroying you each and every day was what gave me this sense of accountability and purpose of hey here's routine here's this military mind state of do this each and every single day and you're going to get the xyz so i started applying those things that i learned in boot camp through the rest of my time in prison so that when i got out of prison not only was I going to go back and finish school, but I was going to go back and play college basketball again, which is when we met. So I go through prison a year at the halfway house, um, a year on ISP inmate status, which means I was still an inmate of Colorado. And at the age of 28, I found the only college in the country that I could go play college basketball at, Johnson and Wales. <laughs> um, I couldn't go to any other school because I couldn't, I couldn't go to move to other states. I, I had to be within Denver and I almost didn't get to go to Denver. And then let alone, I wasn't able to travel with my team. So I could only, I only played in 13 games that first year because I couldn't leave Denver Metro area. But with all that stuff going through prison up to that point, it, it gave me this, this routine and discipline. And, you know, when you're surrounded by negativity and, and people who don't care about anything, when you're surrounded by that stuff and you, embrace it in the sense that I was trying to change. Like I came out of prison on this mission that I was going to, like, I didn't know what I was going to do, but I wanted to change the world. And, you know, one of my favorite slides, and this is why I wear this hoodie, you know, is I had this crazy desire that I wanted to get out of prison and, and not only change myself, but make an impact. And I didn't know it was going to be speaking. I didn't know what it was going to be, but, you know, first I wanted to finish my basketball career and that's, how I ended up at Johnson Wells because it was literally the only college I could go to because all my, you know, NCAA time had been taken from me. Mm -hmm. So you, you go into prison and this eight months of just complete hopelessness, you go into prison. I'm sure it still was just completely hopeless. And then you spend six weeks in solitary confinement. At what point did you start being able to see even, even to just see some hope in the situation? So the first time I saw hope was again back to boot camp. So I did eight months on bond, and then I got sentenced. And then uh, everybody goes to what they call DRDC, the Denver Diagnostic. It's a 24-hour maximum facility, and that's where I was in isolation for six weeks. And then I I volunteered to be a part of that boot camp program. And boot camp is a 90-day program. So if you graduate 90 days, you get time cut off your sentence. Well, I was in boot camp for 11 months and two weeks because 
the the administration at boot camp knew that they wanted to keep me from going to other prisons because they thought I'd start a race war because I was a basketball player and wanted to play basketball versus hanging out with the color of my skin. So I was held, yeah, um, I was held in boot camp almost nine months longer than I was supposed to be there because they didn't want me going to a different facility and having to deal with prison politics. And I get along with everybody. Like prison was easy for me because I, I treated every person with respect no matter what their crime was. And if you do that, like people get along with you. And so I didn't go in trying to be somebody I wasn't, but boot camp helped me. Like they kept me there for almost a year and it allowed me to get one third of my time of prison done with. And in the next two years, I was at different facilities where, you know, I fought fires for a while. I was down in Canyon City at Skyline. So the boot camp stuff gave me discipline and it just made me it made me stronger mentally. So when I had those last two years in prison, it was, it was a little bit easier for me. And I attribute boot camp for the only reason I made it through prison like that. If it wasn't for boot camp, I wouldn't have, I would have struggled way worse. Man, that's crazy. There, I mean, there's a lot of people in hopeless situations. We don't all have something as drastic as prison to get us out of that mindset. Do you have a recommendation for somebody who's just in a hopeless situation that maybe doesn't have an outlet like that come up. How how can you how can we get out of that hopeless situation and start to find hope if we don't have that catalyst from externally? For me, I think hope is finding something that you love and enjoy. What people don't realize is throughout all my mental health and depression and suicide and alcohol and prison, the one thing that kept me going. Well, I, I have three things that I consider. Um, you know, God, my family and Bill's family. But what people don't realize is basketball was everything to me. When I was in prison, I thought about basketball every single day. Like I want to get out and play basketball. I want to get out and finish my college degree. It was all driven by the game of basketball. And so when people are struggling and they don't have hope, my I wouldn't even call it advice is you got to find something that your purpose, like you're passionate about, whether it's your family, your friends, but if you can find something that you truly care about, then work towards whatever that is building a, a job or a career or a business, but you got to find something that you love. Cause if you don't have anything that you love, it will be a struggle, but a lot of people don't know what to look for. Uh, and they also don't know what they care about. And if they don't know what they care about, I, I think one thing I, I tell students too is you got to try things. Try to do some different things. Like instead of sitting in isolation in your apartment or your dorm or wherever you are and you're struggling, get on Groupon and go swing a golf club or go, you know, skydiving. Go try to do something and, and stimulate your brain from being stuck in that funk. But when you're hopeless, it is hard. You need counseling. That's, I mean, if we're going to talk about that, that's, if you are stuck, please go see a counselor, talk to a therapist, because they are trained professionals to help you figure out what you need to do. That's really great advice. We appreciate that. And and I don't want to skate over this because at, at first light, the idea that you thought about basketball every day, it seems kind of trivial. It seems kind of ridiculous. If I'm playing devil's advocate a little bit, like you're in prison, 
you accidentally kill the guy, you're suffering from mental illness that, and thoughts of suicide that go all the way back to when you were 13 years old and you're holding on to basketball. And I don't think we give those type of things enough credit. Can you shed some light on, it might just be basketball, but if you have that sort of excitement or passion or pull to do something and you can give yourself to that, how does that transpire into other areas of your life? And what's the value of that? It's not necessarily just a game of basketball, but for me, it's a sense of community and camaraderie. I don't have a lot of friends outside of basketball because I've always been surrounded by basketball. Whether you're a musician or dance or rodeo, like you start doing events and you're, you're surrounded by people who are like-minded, it makes you want to be around those people. So yes, it was the game of basketball, but it was, for me, it was like my boys. Like I, I miss being on the court with my guys and, and joking and, and playing horse or, you know, talking trash to each other. A part of why people struggle with depression and isolation is they lack that human interaction and bond. You have a connection with somebody. And if you look at a lot of the mental health statistics, the people who are struggling are struggling because they don't have a friendship or they don't have a relationship with anybody and they're stuck in their own thoughts. And that is, that's when people get in trouble. And I'm, I'm guilty of it too. If I don't talk to my friends or my wife or somebody like that, I'll get caught up into my own negative thought process. But when I decide like to go play basketball or something like that, again, I'm instantly uplifted because I'm like, oh, cool. I get to go talk trash to somebody and, and have some fun. I think sports are the greatest equalizer. I think sports from, from a political, from a religious, from a spiritual, from a, a, a racial standpoint, everybody has a common goal. It's to you know, win that game or kick the soccer ball, like whatever it is, everybody's going to that game and it's a common, it's a common thing and, and everybody can talk about it. Yeah, I think that's the key. It's not the it's not the basketball that you're passionate about. It's that common ground. And so from a broader standpoint, whatever that is that creates common ground and that creates that bond for you, that's what you should be following. It's not the fact that you just get to go shoot hoops. It's the fact that you're you're at home there and you have people that get you there. And it's those connections and those friendships that come from the basketball that really is the the driving force. Yes, sir. I 100%. I think we use social media wrong. I think social media can actually be a great way to keep that relationship with people. You know, instead of having this comparison world, you have the opportunity to find like-minded people, whether it's on a Facebook group or whatever, but you can have the ability to have a Zoom session like we're doing where we can actually sit and talk. Like you think of the 1912 pandemic or whatever, all those people were stuck and they, they didn't have technology where, you know, all three of us are talking right now. You know, we have this unique position in the world where we can actually continue to build relationships and have community when we're stuck at home. Um, and so I think people should put a positive light on that and that you have an opportunity to speak to whoever you need to on zoom or, you know, whatever social media, you know, because you, you can keep your friendships alive. So what is that for you now? Because in, in my experience and, and my story is, especially this last year, we've actually had a lot of, um, 
a lot of engagement with people that have been suffering from drug and alcohol abuse. And actually, we've had a handful of really close friends pass away this year from issues with it. And and, and nothing is as dramatic as your story by any means. It was themselves, right? Heart failures or things like that that finally caught up with them. How do you manage that every day? Because in my experience, if you struggle with some sort of substance abuse or mental health and addiction, those things still creep up and there's still temptation there. What, how do you manage it? And what do you offer to somebody that's sitting at home right now looking at that bottle or thinking like, ah, I could just fall off the wagon for a minute? This pandemic would have been the perfect opportunity for me to drink again. And I would have, I could have rationalized it in my head and said, oh, I'm dealing with isolation. You know, the whole world shut down. I lost my job and my career. I don't think anybody's really going to judge me if I drink. And that thought came across my head a couple of times. I'm like, I'm sitting at home. I could have a couple of drinks, not that big of a deal. But for me, I have a, such a unique situation because of what happened that instantly, as soon as I start thinking about drinking, I think about Bill. I think about their family and I, I don't want to ever, ever put myself in a position like that. Cause when I, I drank alcohol, I was the people used to call me Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde. Like I'm this quiet reserved person, but you get alcohol in me and I turn into a like bonkers crazy. And so I don't want to ever go down that path again. Now I haven't talked about this openly until now. This shows my, where I stand on alcohol. Some of my closest family members have been drinking a lot and everybody knows me, knows my family is like, means so much to me. I haven't talked to my brothers in months because they've been drinking and drinking to the point where I don't want to be around them. I have such a line in the sand with alcohol. Most people don't that I've stopped talking to people like the people that care most to me in this world because they, they're, they're drinking. And to me, that's just a slap in my face. They know exactly what I went through yet. They still want to drink. And I, I probably shouldn't be talking about this now. Cause, but it's, I don't know. It's it just alcohol ruins people's lives. You, you go to any AA or NA and you see people lose their entire lives, their familyhood, their wives, their daughters, their husbands, because they'd rather drink, you know, because of the accident, I can never, I can't go down that path again. It's just, it scares me. I think alcohol is the biggest gateway drug ever. You know, it's on every single college football weekend. You see commercials for it. You see all these ads of people having this great time because they're drinking XYZ liquor and, you know, people want to be popular. It's human nature to want to have friends and, and you know, kind of be seen. And, and then you have these commercials with people who are drinking and all of a sudden they're having fun. People get caught into that. I mean, it's, there's a science behind all that marketing, but I, I, I don't know. It's just alcohol scares me. And I've struggled with the, the want to do something during this pandemic, but I just keep thinking about what my job and my career is and I, I'm not going to drink again. And so I go to the, I work out at home. I can't go to the gym. Um, I listen to music. I write, I read, I have my family, my wife and my dogs. And when I'm struggling, I, I hang out with them. Back to that community, back to that support system. Yep, exactly. 
Yeah. And I, I think for some people, addiction isn't maybe a substance like you can be addicted to work or you can be addicted, you know, we, you could be addicted to anything. Like I, I could possibly say I'm addicted to college basketball. <laughs> like I, I can watch college basketball all day, every Saturday, but then I'm, you know, and that's fine in and of itself. So there are some things that of themselves aren't bad, but you put, you put too much time and energy into them. Now I'm spending my whole Saturday watching basketball and not hanging out with my family, you know, so that can be, it can become a problem, even if it's not a substance. Can you speak into that at all? Like what, what do you do with that situation? So, you know, I was an alcoholic, a drug addict. Like I, I was drinking 18 beers a night, waking up and going to practice at four or, you know, five o'clock in the morning, never missing practice. I could drink a fifth and still go drop 20 points on college players. Like it was, that was nothing to me. So the alcohol, I've always had this addiction to it. I can't just have one drink or two drinks or three drinks. It's got to be 10, 12, 14 until I black out and pass out. I still have that addictive personality. And people ask me this all the time. So what do you do with that addictive personality? Well, when I was at Johnson and Wales, I applied it to school. So when I went back to school, yes, I went back for basketball, but I went back to get my degrees. And so during my three years at Johnson Wales, I got two bachelor degrees, three minors, and I graduated summa cum laude, magnum cum laude. I was taking 24 and a half credits a trimester, so double full time, plus working 40 hours a week. So my addiction, all I did was substitute the drinking and the partying to I've got to get every single class done. I've got to do hours and hours of homework. And then I have to work from eight o'clock at night till midnight because I, I need to keep myself busy so that I don't screw up. So I just substituted all my alcohol and partying with positive addictions. I'm still, I'm still addicted to things, but I just substituted those negative things to what I deemed as positive. Now there's also negative effects to that. Like my uncle stopped me a couple summers ago and he's like, Ethan, you got to stop working like this. I, I slept four hours a day for seven years straight, seven days a week. And it was, it was, it was tearing me apart. Cause I was, I didn't sleep. I, all I did was work. I didn't care about anything else. And he's like, you need to, to chill out because this is killing you inside. And so that that's actually one of the biggest things I struggle with is, is trying to learn how to relax and use downtime. Like even my wife gets on me. She's like, stop working. Cause I work seven days a week. So what you're saying is, is you've just found ways to to reshape that addictive personality that you notice you had, you've come to that self-awareness into things that are more positive, but then you've even seen that take a toll, even though they're positive in our culture, right? Versus going on a bender, you work seven years straight without a day off. It could take the same toll on you. So what's that evolution look like now? How are you managing yourself and giving yourself the, the grace to take some downtime? I know it's a struggle, but you said you're trying to work towards it. Well, it's, it's like anything that you do in life is the more you realize something or self-actualization and, and you start this internal, you know, self-reflection, you realize I've got to do X, Y, Z better. So before it was, I was a complete college failure, GPA of 0.0. I've got to change that. So let's be a 4.0 student. And so during that transition of working so hard, I started realizing there's other things I need to work on. And that is, you know, the relaxation part. So again, it comes down to realizing what's going on with you 
like you can hear this story and hear all these cool things that I like accomplished and got through. But if you don't want to change, none of this, what we're talking about matters. So it's the, up to the individual. And I think you were talking about it earlier, Travis, is it's got to be up to that individual person to realize and, and have that self-actualization and say, hey, I'm struggling with this. How can I address this? And I think that is the first key to changing things that you struggle with is my wife could point something out, but until I make that decision and say, hey, I need to do this, I'm not going to make that change. And so I think it's it comes down to each individual person on what they want to do. And when you realize something is not good and you have those tools to address it, then you can start to make that change. But it's it's circling back to why we started this conversation, talking about it and not being afraid to talk about it and and being vulnerable and saying, hey, I'm, I'm struggling. You know, like Travis just said, I can watch college basketball for 14 hours a day on Saturday, but am I missing out on my family time or could I be doing something else? And, and you realize that. And that's that, that piece of at least talking about it and saying, hey, these are, you know, these could be issues. If more knowledge was the answer, like De- Derek Sivers says, if knowledge was the answer, we'd all be billionaires with ripped abs. <laughs> like that's not, it's what you do with that knowledge that, that really makes the difference. You can, you can know everything and you can study for hours and months and years. If you don't apply any of that, it's useless. No, that's exactly right. It comes down to each individual person and, you know, like people talk about alcoholism and if there was a cure for alcoholism, you know, you put it in a pill and the world would be cured of it. But that's, that's not the world we live in. It's people got to figure some of this stuff out and, and take that education that they learn and apply it. Because if you don't apply it, then, you know, nothing's going to happen. You know, you learn so much and why I do my job is to try to give them the tools to realize and say, hey, I'm struggling with something. Let's go talk to somebody. Like think of how many people you probably work with in your workforce right now that seem great on the outside during these Zoom sessions, but as soon as it's done, they're they're drinking or smoking and they hate their life because they haven't left their house. And, you know, at least let's talk about it and then try to find people to, you know, go get help, find that community that'll help you get out of that funk. I'd like to talk a little bit more about you and how you got into this speaking obviously your situation led you to this opportunity but you failed at a personal communications you were taking classes online because you didn't want to see people this obviously was not a natural ability of yours that you wanted to turn into something but somewhere in you there were some strengths that you were allowed to leverage you might not even be aware of those yet but looking back can you identify some of those things that you're like i really leaned on this aspect of myself to get through those hard times and those things that I didn't know how to do? So this might kind of seem against a lot of what I've talked about, but I think my basketball ego, like I, I have a big head when it comes to basketball. Um, I think that kind of confidence helped push me to being a better speaker and to being able to address this some people look at like anger and aggression as negative. I saw an interview with uh, Kobe Bryant, you know, before he passed and he talked about his kill list. And if you say a kill list, everybody's like, oh man, that's negative. But what Kobe had was this list of all the people he wanted to be better than. 
who were drafted above him or who, you know, and I've always had that. I never labeled it as a kill list until I saw that interview, but as a undersized point guard, I always had lists of people I wanted to beat. And when I got a chance to play against them, I would go at them. I would never back down. And I think that competitive aggression that I have, because I'm a, I can, I compete, I will go toe to toe with anybody when it comes to what I care about. And so I apply that to the speaking thing. And so I just substituted again, this will that I had from a basketball standpoint and said, okay, I have a different job and purpose now and career with this speaking thing. Put all your energy and heart into this and treat it like basketball. And so I wake up and it's a part of the same comparison we're talking about. I'll see other speakers and their social media stuff. And honestly, I get pissed because I'm like, man, I'm better than that dude. What's going on? Like put me on the stage with him and I'm going to slaughter him. I've taken that same basketball mentality of I want to be the best speaker out there. And so I just substituted my love for basketball to this game of speaking. And it's, it's hard because it, it like, it's not the same as playing. I can't go to a court and take out all this pent up energy and aggression on the basketball court and, you know, do a three or four between the legs and turn you around and pull up from deep and, and laugh at you. I can't do that with, with the, the speaking stuff. Like I have to kind of, you know, keep this composure and saying, Hey, this is what I got to do. And, and so it's, it's, it's a different, it's a different thing, but that's my mentality is I want to be the best at this speaking thing. I wanted to be the best student when I was at Johnson Wells and, you know, I was awarded the president's award and all that stuff. So I was literally the best student on campus because I set my mind to it. And so when I wanted to play basketball, I set my mind to it. And then when it came to the speaking thing, I made a decision on April 1st of 2014. I said, I'm going to be a professional speaker. And then I haven't looked back. He knows the date. (laughs) Yeah. I think I, I can see kind of a, I think an important pattern here in the things that you're talking about. So you took your addiction to alcohol and turned it into something positive and you've taken this confidence in basketball and turned it into a confidence in speaking. So maybe that's a practical piece that we can pull out of this for our listeners is everybody's good at something. Like we all have natural strengths and we all have natural passions. You can take those natural things and apply them to things that maybe you're not naturally good at. If I can do it here, I should be able to do it there also. So you can kind of draw from that natural tendency and apply it to other things that maybe aren't as natural for you. You can still like those are things like just because you're not naturally good at it doesn't mean you can't learn to be good at it. And you can take that confidence from what you are good at and apply it anywhere, really. No, yes, sir. That's a, a quick piece to that. So my mentor on the speaking circuit is one of the top speakers in the world. When I met him, he laughed at me as a speaker. And last summer, uh, the 2019 summer, um, I was speaking at his leadership conference. And after I was done, he got up on stage and he goes, I just want you guys to know, Ethan was the worst speaker I've ever seen in my life. (laughs) When I first met him, he was like, he was so bad. And, you know, my first instinct is like, oh my gosh, that hurts. Why would you say that? <laughs> but then he goes, now look at him. He's the best speaker here at this conference. And it kind of brought that to circle is just like anything. I've worked at it. I practice my speech. 
I, I look in the mirror when I'm doing this and I'm like, how do I get that same, you know, aggression on the basketball court? How do I put it into this slide? How do I, how do I make this word resonate longer with somebody? How do I, you know, make this blackout scene seem more visual for the person with their eyes closed? So I've just applied those same things of basketball. Like I've got to be really, really good with my right hand finish, you know, or a floater. Now I just apply that same kind of concept to whatever my speaking path is. So it is, it's, you don't have to be great at something, but if you were willing to work at it and you care about it and you have purpose and passion about it, you can apply it to whatever it is in life that you want. And you, you touched on that, you know, just at that last piece right there, Travis, but that's, I was, I, I literally, I was probably the worst speaker you've ever seen. And I'm only getting better because I, I care about it and I work at it. I try, I practice. And so whatever you do in this life, if you, if you're not the best student in the world, but if you, you know, study 15 extra minutes a day, you're going to end up being a way better student down the road. It's just people, people want that instant gratification. The key here though, it's possible. That does not mean it's going to be easy. Like it's going to be hard. If you're trying to do something that's new and scary and outside your box, it's not going to be easy and it's not going to come natural. You have to put the work in and you have to be willing to fail in that. You have to be willing to learn and do things the hard way until you get good at it. It's not just like you decide one day I want to be a speaker and then all of a sudden, like I'm an awesome speaker. That's not how it works. It, it takes hours and hours and hours that nobody sees in the basement by myself speaking to the mirror or dribbling a basketball after dinner for two hours or like name it, you know, playing your instrument. It, it doesn't happen one hour a week in band class. You got to put the work in that social media culture that we were talking about earlier. I think that's what that leads to is we all think that, well, if somebody can just turn it on and do that, it just means they're just good at it and I'm not. And so there's that comparison piece, but you don't know how many hours and how much hard work that person put in so that they can put on social media, you know, and, and they look good because they've gotten to that point, but it's not, it doesn't happen in a vacuum. It doesn't happen overnight. Case in point, uh, LeBron James is one of my favorite basketball players, if not my favorite during this generation. And everybody sees him as this six, eight, six, nine, you know, body of work, unbelievable athlete but he spends between a million dollars and $2 million a year on his body. He's lifting and working out before each game. He didn't, he didn't just wake up and, and be like that. He's been practicing in the gym hours and hours and hours. You know, you watch Kobe, he's working on the same fundamental footwork. I teach fourth graders. Here's one of, you know, arguably one of the greatest basketball players of all time. And he's working on, front pivots, reverse pivots by himself in a gym. And people don't realize like you have to work at whatever your profession is over and over, whether you want to be the best business owner or CEO, you, you have to work at it. It doesn't just come naturally. Yeah. The best in the world still have to put in the work. You actually did plenty of free engagements for quite a while. Did you not before you started making some traction? Yeah, uh, I think probably my first 100 speeches were basically volunteer and free. 100? Yeah. yeah. See, people people don't realize that. 
I've had I've had speakers contact me and say, hey, how are you getting all these speeches? Da da da. Like this is awesome. And I told the guy, like, I was like, I did about a hundred free at the beginning. And he goes, What? He goes, I don't want to put in that work. I was like, Well, okay. Don't get me wrong. There's some people that they can do three or four speeches and all of a sudden they're getting paid XYZ for a speech, you know, because it does take networking and the right people and and all that. And my path hasn't been that easy. Uh, you know, I like, I don't have a book. I don't have a, you know, a show or something like that. And a lot of speakers have all that. And that's that kind of, you know, if I look back on my, my past as a speaker, there are certain things that I would do different. Cause I've learned a lot. Like I've had agents who lied to me and stole from me. And, and like, there's so many things that I've learned along, along this process, you know, speaking is, you, you think of all the, you know, like your favorite musician, they might have a top hit all of a sudden and everybody's like, oh, they're a one hit wonder and they came out of nowhere. They probably were playing in tiny bars and out in the middle on a beach where they had two people watching them for the last 10 years. And then they finally, you know, they finally make it. But that's the thing is you have to find something that you care about that much to be able to spend that much time on it to, to perfect yeah, how do you combat that imposter syndrome? Because you did a hundred of these, and you have an amazing story, but you are not famous. You're not somebody that like people in the street just want to know what this guy's story is. Like, who cares what you have to say, right? Like, you're just some dude. So you went through the struggle of starting to communicate your message, starting to inspire people, starting to connect on a personal level. I mean, how did you? I don't even know how to ask this question because that seems like so much grunt work. Like, how do you stay inspired at, at, at speech 50 when you're like, I might need to do 50 more of these for free. Yeah. Again, I think it's the purpose behind what I'm doing. I believe I'm supposed to be doing this for Bill, his family, for all the other people that get to see me speak. So I'm motivated by something outside of fame or fortune or any of that stuff like some people want to be speakers because it's it's the next best thing to stand on stage in front of all these people and people want to know who you are i didn't get into it for that i got into it because i want to help people if i didn't have to speak and and i could still have the same impact i would do something like that but i have to do this in order to tell my story or to be in front of students to get them to open up like i said i think this speaking career like doing all those free events and booking for me, this is, this has been way harder than going through prison. Hmm. Honestly, like this has been, I struggle with it because once I made that decision back in 2014 to be a speaker, it, I didn't realize it was a business. Like when I started, it was let's volunteer and help. And then once it became a business, like it's, it kind of sucks. Like I hate having to ask for contracts and I had to turn down 350 schools over the last three years because they didn't have a budget to pay me. I can't pay to go out of state to these schools and, and have no money, but that's not why I got into this job. It was to be able to speak to every single one of those students. And I, and I couldn't because I didn't have funds to get there. But those are things like I didn't realize when I started this what that was going to be like. 
And when you speak in middle schools and high schools and colleges, you're not making a lot of money. This isn't what you see on corporate, you know, corporate, you get paid. But when you decide to work with middle school and high schools, it's a whole lot different because schools are already lacking budget. Why would they pay somebody X amount of dollars to come in here when they're just trying to get calculators for their class? You know, and that's why I started my nonprofit was to raise money so I could get to those schools because I don't want to turn down 300 schools again because they don't have a budget. That's not why I did this. I did this to be able to speak. If I could speak every day and do a tour and do 200 schools a year, a 250 a year, I'd do it in a heartbeat because that's why I decided to do this. That's something that I think is super important that we need to call to light is, is you realize that the current format of just going to schools and speaking and having them directly pay you wasn't going to work. So instead of just being like, Oh, I guess my message isn't going to get heard because this is the only path. Like you actually started a nonprofit to try to help support and fund the back end of this. So you could not say, so you had to go out and find another method to make this feasible. Can you give us some insight to what that looked like and what your aha was to go and start the nonprofit? So the nonprofit, I never thought about this until my mentor, uh, Tommy Spalding has, you know, he's a New York times bestseller, two of them. I came to him like in 2013 and was telling him the struggles that I had. And he goes, well, let's start a nonprofit. I was like, what? I, I went to school for entrepreneurship and business and starting companies. And he goes, no, let's start a nonprofit because what you're doing, you're helping schools. You know, we're going to raise money. We'll get private donors. We'll get businesses to sponsor. And so that was, that's how it started. I, I've had private donors and a couple businesses sponsor events and, and so that's how I've kind of, you know, managed over these last couple of years, but I had no intention of starting a nonprofit. It just kind of happened. I was open to it though. That was the, that was the thing. I wish I would have known a lot more about the process because there's all these, these red tape laws and rules when you're first starting out that I had no idea about. And, you know, those caused a lot of delays and hiccups and, but again, it's, pushing through all that stuff was again, the whole reason why I do everything is to speak. So I didn't care what was going to be in my way. I was going to find a way to make it happen. You know, when I first started, I was working a full-time job in order to pay for my speaking career. <laughs> you know, that's how much it meant to me, but that's, you know, very few people have that type of drive and I'm, I'm lucky that I care that much about this job. Cause that's, I could have had every, every chance to stop. And people would have been like, oh, you tried. I don't know. I, I just, I think I had the coolest job in the world. And you, you came across this because of a, obviously a very set of unfortunate circumstances that you had to navigate your way through. So you have unique insight. What do you offer to somebody who maybe doesn't have that type of radical experience to, to force them to make a decision, to force them down a specific path? Like you talk about Bill and his family and how that pulls you to do this and how important that is to you. Somebody like me who doesn't have that story behind it, but knows that there are good things that I could be putting out in the world that are good, that people need to hear. How do you help somebody own their story and bring that out and do something with it and make progress towards whatever it is they want to make progress towards? Everybody has a story. 
the, and I say this all the time, there, there are so many people that are more inspiring and more unbelievable. And they've overcome so many more things than I've ever overcome, but they made a decision not to talk about it either because it's too hard or they don't want to face the criticism in your situation, Brandon, you've started this podcast to be able to have a platform to allow people to talk about this. So you're doing your part as well to, to interview or get people on board to give them a platform to talk about their story and how they can help other people. You know, I think everybody has something to offer, but we all have to be open and receptive to it. And I think a lot of people are closed off. I see this all the time in a bas basketball situation where, you know, I coach college basketball and then you get surrounded by high school coaches and, and the college basketball player coaches don't listen to the high school coaches because they think they're higher up than them. But the reality is like, you can learn something from everybody. We just have to be open to it. You two have a story. Your friends have a story. Everybody's got a story that they can, they can teach something to somebody else. It's just finding what that point is and then finding a process and executing on it. So it might not be a motivational speaker. It might be, well, Brandon's found this podcast method and now we can get other people to start our podcast the way we did. And you, you set up you know, a guideline and how Brandon and Travis started our podcast. This is how you do it. That's a story, that's a process. So whatever you guys find, you can teach and educate somebody with that. It's just people have to be receptive. You can't, you can't think, you know, everything. Yeah. I think people tend to minimize their own stories. Just that comparison model again, like, Oh, my story isn't as dynamic as Ethan's. So I shouldn't tell it. It's just that, that self deprecating comparison. That, that's a big roadblock. I think for a lot of people. Yeah. Well, and I think, again, we talk about society and the way we are. I think a lot of people are, are afraid to talk about their failures and their faults. And you guys brought up failure a couple minutes ago. People don't like to discuss the things that they, they weren't able to achieve or accomplish. And in order to learn from somebody, you need to express, I, I failed more than anybody I know, but it doesn't mean I'm going to stop. Yeah. Do you have a, do you have a cool, sorry to interrupt you there, but do you have a cool, like epic failure speech that you've been given that you could share with us in that context? Like <laughs> where you just like flopped and you're like, okay, maybe this isn't for me. Uh, from the speaking standpoint. Yeah. Uh, I don't know if I've had a complete failure. I, I would say probably the first 20 or 30 speeches I gave were probably all failures. Um, <laughs> Okay. Like it wasn't just like bomb one time. It was, it was constant bombing. You know, you listen to like comedians and stuff and I study comedians because they're some of the best motivational speakers out there, stage presence and doing this. And you, you listen to comedians and how many times they fail on a joke at a, you know, at a nightclub or something like that. So I know my first probably 20 or 30 events, like I bombed. It was, it was probably really, really ugly, but I just kept telling myself, I'm going to, you know, keep getting better at this and see it as an, a, an improvement. I've kind of always, you know, obviously with sports, I always compare stuff, you know, with, with the process of going to be, you know, a middle school basketball player, high school basketball player. So when I first started my speaking career, I was like, I'm an eighth grade 
middle school, you know, speaker. I can be a college speaker one day, you know, where I'm going to keep getting better over the next couple of years. And then I'd say probably four or five years ago, I was like, oh man, I'm, I'm kind of like, I got a full ride scholarship to a division one school. That's where my, my confidence is as a speaker. And I've kind of just built this transition of keep working for that goal each and every single day to where I can be drafted by, you know, the NBA of the speaking world. Cause that's like my ultimate goal, but I've looked at it as sports. Like everybody is a middle school basketball player. Who, who are the ones that are getting the extra two hours of jump shots up when everybody else goes home? You look at Chauncey Billups. He was eighth grade basketball year. He was not very good. And I, like he got cut, I think that next summer after his eighth grade year, he was in the gym like six hours a day, every day. And now he's probably Colorado's greatest basketball player of all time. You know, so he had that process and kept working at it. But yeah, I was, I was horrible. Even, <laughs> even Michael Jordan got cut at one time. <laughs> but, you know, we all, like you said earlier, we all, we all start from somewhere. It's the people who care about what they do and they have a passion for it and they pursue it. One of my biggest words is persistence and resiliency. Everybody is going to face roadblocks and obstacles you're going to have doubters and naysayers and people who talk trash about you. Are you going to allow somebody to stop you from your dreams? Like basketball wise, I had people telling me I was never going to play high school basketball. I had teammates telling me I'd never play college. I just use that as fuel. Like, man, screw you guys. I'm going to do this. You're not stopping me. You know, when I went back to Johnson Wells, Brandon, I had, basically the entire department of corrections, the whole entire Colorado prison system saying I wouldn't go play college basketball. I had my DOC liaison stop me from going and meeting with a college team. And he took a full ride scholarship away from me because he didn't want me to play college basketball. Did I stop? No, I, again, found the only school that I could play at. I wasn't going to let somebody stop me from what I wanted to do. Now I followed all the rules. I've done everything right. You know, I didn't jaywalk for 11 years because I didn't want to get in trouble. Right. You know, so it's just, you got to find what you care about. And I tell students all the time, I hated school when I first, you know, those first six colleges I failed out of five colleges I failed out of. But when I went to Johnson and Wales, school became easy because I started applying the things that I cared about. I, I, I was awarded the Entrepreneur Student of the Year Award for the business plan that I wrote in prison with a bunch of inmates and convicts. So I applied every single one of my college classes to starting a business on helping guys stay out of the prison system. So I applied it to what I wanted and school was easy. My master's degree, I was writing an economic paper on the impact Yao Ming had in China. I wasn't going to write something that I didn't care about. So I applied basketball to anything that I could and school was really easy. You just have to find what you, what you're passionate about. And then you have to find ways to apply it because you can apply it to anything. And I think that goes back to what you said earlier, especially with the kids you're talking to, like they might not know what those passions are. They're young. They haven't had a lot of life experience and most of their life experience is 
dependent on their parents' experience that they've given to them, right? So at a certain age, something switches, usually right after high school, where you get to start to take some initiative on that and start to self-discover those passions and things you'll want. But even for people that you were talking earlier, middle-aged men, middle-aged women are the largest group for suicide and for mental health issues. Is that tied together? Is that you know, we're just carrying on these things that our parents are passionate about. We never really discover our own things and how to apply them into our own lives. So now we've just kind of fallen in this place of nothingness and emptiness or how do those relate to each other or do they even? Yeah, I, I believe they do. I don't, I don't know the research and data off the top of my head, but you know, you look at how many students struggle with going to school their first couple of years, uh, like the average age now of graduation is six years. You know, you don't graduate in four years, it's six years now because people don't know what they want. And I, I believe a lot of people go to school and take a job to please their parents or the people around them. And then you see them when they're 40 years old and they hate their life and they hate their job. And, you know, they, they're just running through life every single day, like on a, what do you call it? Or a, a, a rat race or whatever. Like mm. I, I made a decision I have a finance degree and I, my internship was with a finance company and it was basically accounting. And I just remember sitting at that desk going, I do not want to do this the rest of my life. I can't just sit in this cubicle and waste away. Like a nine to five is not what I wanted to do. I, I just think so many people get caught into that trap and they're, they're stuck and they don't know how to get out of it. Like I tell, I tell high school kids all the time, if you need to take a gap year, take a gap year. Cause you don't know what you want when you're 18 or 19 years old. I have all this college education and I think college is amazing, but I also think it's not, it's not for everybody. There's no reason to force yourself into college debt and, and taking four years of classes. If you hate it, travel the world, you know, write a blog. I mean, we're in this world now where you can you can write a blog in Thailand and have a job as a blogger and make more money than you would as, you know, working a nine to five. You know, you're told what to do for so long, you know, and a lot of it is your parents. It's it's the community that you're in and you don't want to disappoint them. And I get it. But it's again, it comes down to you when you're 18, 19, 20 years old, something's going to click. And you're going to say, hey, I need to live for myself and not somebody else. Hopefully that happens anyway. I think part of the problem is we internally know that about ourselves, but we just never embrace it and take action on it. So then we live miserably because we know we're not where we should be. But what else am I going to do? I don't know. I, life is hard. You know, it, nobody has it figured out. It's a constant learning process you're always going to find something else that is new or exciting. And are you going to spend time doing that? Are you going to, you know, live with your family and do the right thing? So it's, it's, um, you know, I don't have it figured out. I, I've, I mess up all the time. I fail at all kinds of stuff. It's just, you know, I, I understand that this is a learning process and I got to keep getting better wherever that's going to take me in the next five years. You know, I don't have it figured out. And my whole thing with kids and students and, and adults is I just want to open the conversation because if you're struggling with mental health or alcohol or drugs, you need help to get out. You, it's, you can't really do it by yourself. 
Now you have to make that decision for yourself, but you're going to need a support team. You're going to need, you know, my, my teammates at Johnson Wells, and I talk about them every single speech. I wouldn't have made it through all the parole, all the ankle monitor, all the parole officers showing up to home games if it wasn't for my teammates. They, they were like driving me to my UAs and my BAs and they were, you know, coming over to my house because I, I, couldn't, I couldn't leave my house outside of, you know, certain times. So I'd have friends come over and hang out and watch Entourage at the time. You know, just, I had, a, I had bonds and, you know, friends that helped me through that process of, you know, sticking to what I was supposed to do. Yep, that support community, it's huge. Comes full circle. So tell us a little bit about life consequences and the work that you're doing and where is it going? So Life Consequences is my nonprofit. We have a new website that just went live this weekend at lifecon.org. But the whole idea is, one, it's a platform to be able to raise money for funding to get into schools that don't have drug and alcohol programming. Our next process with our new board of directors is we are looking to do like a 100 city tour. We're providing uh, mental health first aid classes into schools. And we're starting to build a platform for other speakers who have amazing stories that aren't seen or heard. So we're given a platform to other people to be able to get into schools because I think, I, again, what, like we talked about, everybody has a story. I can go into a school and tell my story, but I, I might only impact you know, a certain amount of kids, but somebody else is going to have a story that impacts them. So we want to provide as much drug and alcohol and social media and stories for students to, to basically grab on and change their lives. So we want to impact a million students. Um, we're working on that. We're at 100,000 right now, and we're going to just keep growing until we can get to the point of the whole goal for LifeCon is big picture is 20 years down the road. I want it to be like mad where we provide constant school and education programming for, for schools all over the country. Mad. You mean mothers against drunk driving? Yeah. Okay. But we just, we, we cover mental health and drugs and alcohol and social media and leadership. You know, we're not just focused on the, the alcohol, because that's my story. I want other people to have stories to tell. So it's, it's, it's kind of like a speaker's bureau in the sense of all these different people, we can impact different lives through, through our platform, lifecon.org. Ethan, sir, you've been so gracious with your time, with your story, lifecon.org. Where else can people find you, connect with you and learn more about you or book you to come and speak? Yeah, you can, uh, you can book me on lifecon.org. Um, if you're a professional organization, then you can go to ethan-fisher.com. Um, that's where I do all my college and corporate events. Um, you can find me on LinkedIn, Ethan Fisher. Um, you can find me on you know Facebook and Instagram, uh, efish.lifecon for Instagram. Uh, I'm not too hard to find. Um, you know, just type in Ethan Fisher and you'll, you'll find some articles on me. But uh, I would love to come to your corporation, your organization, whether it's working with your youth, whether it's your kids or your family. But I think a big piece I need to come into the workforce. And I think this is what we talked about, Brandon, was uh, coming into corporate organizations and saying, hey, this is what's going on in your workforce. This is the type of economic impact depression and suicide and, and alcohol abuse have. 
Let's help your employees have a better life so that not only do you help their life, but you increase your bottom line, which I know is a huge piece in the corporate world. You, it's all about profit. If your employees aren't doing well, your, your bottom line is not going to do well. So let's find a way to help your employees and get them to the help and resources that they need. That's awesome. And we'll put all that information in the show notes. Ethan, thank you again so much. We're eternally grateful for you, your message, your story, and the work you're doing. Keep the good fight on, my man. Yes, sir. Thanks, Brandon. Thanks, Travis. It was, it was a fun interview. I enjoyed it a lot. Thanks. Yeah, thanks for being here.